0: The Peter Shift show. Let's get straight to the point. Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with spot me and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals 24. Banking services debit card provided by Bancorp, Bank NIA, or Stride Bank NIA. Members of FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Welcome to another live Peter Schiff Show podcast. And I want to remind everybody once again, give me the thumbs up. Whether you like this podcast or not, say that you like it, uh, um, comment on it. And subscribe to my YouTube channel if you're not currently a subscriber. You know, you guys slacked off a bit uh, last podcast. You still did good. I think we have eleven or 12,000 likes. Uh, or, but it's a little bit fewer than we had in the podcast before with the same amount of views. So step it up. If you, uh, if you forgot to hit that like button uh, last time, make sure and, and hit it this time. Well, the financial crisis that I believe we're already in, Now, this is, of course, the early stages of that financial crisis. It is unfolding uh, before your eyes, if you're awake or smart enough to recognize what you see. But it's going to get a lot worse. At some point, people are going to realize that we're in a financial crisis, although they're not going to realize why. (laughs) You know, they're they're all going to be just as blindsided by this financial crisis as they were by the much smaller financial crisis in 2008. That also took them by complete surprise. And if you remember back then, they were describing the crisis as, you know, a hundred year flood. You know, nobody could have possibly predicted this, right? I mean, this was a confluence of events. You know, this was a a crazy black swan that, you know, nobody could have uh, foreseen, which of course was all a bunch of BS. Because a number of people, myself included, not only saw it in advance, but spent years uh, warning about it. I mean, I wrote a book about it. Uh, so the signs were there. You just had to be cognizant of them and you had to, you know read them. It wasn't even like they were uh, written in Chinese or something. It was pretty clear uh, what was about to happen. And you know, the same thing, this time. In fact, I think it's even more clear. I mean, this is the most obvious financial crisis that nobody sees coming. I mean, this isn't even a black swan. I mean, this isn't even a white swan. This is like, this is like a pigeon. They're they're everywhere, right? I mean, this is a very common bird uh, that, you know, is not coming out of left field. It's just, you know, it's, it's right there, right? I mean, uh, but, you know, Wall Street uh, has a, a big vested interest in ignoring this, and so does uh, uh, a lot of people on Main Street, so does academia, uh, the financial media, the government. Nobody wants to uh, acknowledge this until, of course, it already happens. And then they have to figure out who the scapegoat is. But whoever they end up blaming it on, the solution is always, well, we just need more government. right? They never look back and reflect on government's role in creating the crisis. No, 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 they're, they're too busy pointing fingers at somebody in the private sector. And, and, and holding out government as the salvation. We just need more government. If we only had more regulations, then this wouldn't have happened. No, it happened because we had too many regulations. What we need is free market regulations. Those are the ones that work. Government regulations don't, and not only don't they work, but they sabotage the free market regulations that actually do work. Now, what was going on this week in the market was a continuation of the rise in long-term bond yields. As I've been predicting on this program uh, since before the rise began, this is relentless. And during the week, yesterday in fact, and maybe early this morning, bond yields hit new highs. The yield on a 30-year Treasury was now not only over 5%, but over 5.1%. In fact, the high intraday this morning was 5.144%. Now, we did get some profit-taking, I guess, people who had shorted bonds, and they made a lot of money this week, uh, short bonds. They covered, I guess, into the week, and there was a rally, not a big rally, uh, but bonds recovered those losses, <clears throat> and the yield on a 30-year closed at 5 Spot 089%. This is, again, the highest weekly close. And that would have been the highest close, you know, going back to 2007 since yesterday. Uh, So yields are moving higher. The yield on a 10-year momentarily got above 5% as well intraday, just barely before buyers stepped up and the yield backed off to 5.089 but still another backup on the week. In fact, the only maturities now on the yield curve that are below 5% are the five-year and the 10-year. The five-year is 4.862, but a three-month, a six-month, a two-year, they're all above 5%, and um, the 30-year is above 5%. The yield curve is pretty flat around that 5% uh, number, but it's not gonna stay flat. It's going to steepen out. I expect long-term interest rates to continue the march upward. And we should put more distance between a 90-day, six-month Treasury bill and a 10- to 30-year Treasury bond, especially the 30-year bond. I mean, that one is going to take the biggest hit. But I think that if this yield curve normalizes by the end of next year, I think that the short rates, which are now around five and a half, they may move up closer to six. But at the same time, the longer end, the 10 to 30 year, that's going to move up to seven to eight at a minimum. Now, the question is, will the Fed allow that to happen? Will the financial markets, will the banking sector, uh, will the economy, will the government be able to withstand that increase. I mean, so far, it seems like, okay, you know, we're surviving 5%, although I don't really think we are. Again, I think the numbers belie the problems that underline the economy. First of all, we got the leading economic indicators that came out yesterday, and they came out negative again for the 16th consecutive month. Now, I mean, that's pretty rare. I mean, you have to go back to 2007, 2008, which was the Great Recession, right, the worst recession since the Great Depression of the 1930s. So you gotta go back there to find a string of negative uh, leading economic indicators that's longer than the 16 months we got now. And in fact, it was worse than expected. They were looking for minus 0.4, And we got minus 0.7, which was way worse than any expectations, that the range of expectations was from minus 0.2 to minus 0.5, and we were minus 0.7. And to add insult to injury, we revised down the previous negative month from negative 0.4 to negative 0.5. So the economy is a lot weaker then the experts are telling us. That's what the leading economic indicators are saying. But I mean, if the economy is so strong, how can these leading economic indicators be so weak? But the bigger banks, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and a lot of the regional banks just got clobbered. But uh, American Express was leading the decline, down 5.4%. They reported earnings, and, and they're just reporting just the early stages of problem. But Anybody who is loaning out money during the bubble is gonna have a problem getting the money back as the bubble deflates. So this is just the tip of a big iceberg for American Express, Visa, MasterCard, Discover, you know, all these uh, credit card companies, because there's gonna be a wave of credit card defaults. I mean, we already have record credit card interest rates, over 20%, at the same time, we have record uh, credit card balances. How can the consumer afford to pay record high rates on a record high amount of debt. He can't, especially since he's paying more for food, uh, energy, insurance, healthcare, you name it, it's more expensive. And, and so these uh, these defaults are coming. But the economy is weak. Look, look at the solar panel. There was this solar stock uh, that was down, uh, Solar Bridge Technologies reported bear earnings, down 27% on the day. Uh, new 52-week low, that stock is now 76% below, it's 52-week high. Obviously, Americans can't afford to buy solar panels, uh, you know, so uh, you know, that, that's a big upfront cost uh, in order to put those things on. Uh, so any kind of discretionary purchase, a big ticket, that, there's just no way. I mean, maybe people were financing these things before with cheap credit, but that's not available anymore, so they can't buy, right? If, if consumers can't borrow, they can't buy. That's why housing uh, sales are collapsing. Uh, autos, anything that requires debt to buy is out of reach uh, for most Americans. Anyway, we've got a quick commercial. I got a lot more to talk about. So stick around. We'll be right back. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Another indicator of the underlying weakness of the U.S. economy is the weakening fiscal position of the U.S. government, because remember, if times are good, then more people are paying more taxes because they're earning more money and fewer people are drawing on government benefits because they don't need them because things are great. But the fiscal position of the United States continues to deteriorate. We got the end for the government's reporting. And first of all, the budget deficit in September came out at twice what they expected. They expected $85.5 billion of red ink during the month, and instead we got $170.9 billion. So higher than the, the worst estimate, but double what they expected. And for the entire year, the official budget deficit was 1.7 trillion. That's what Congress claimed the deficit was. But of course, I don't look at what Congress claims the the deficits were. I just look at the increase in the national debt because that's a more honest number. Because the national debt actually includes everything that the government borrowed. The official budget only includes what they borrowed to pay for on-budget items. I mean, this is ridiculous, right? If something is not on the budget and the government pays for it, they don't count it. So, for example, if there's a, uh, you know, a national disaster, natural disaster, and the government has relief for that natural disaster, and let's say that's, you know, $50 billion that they have to spend for disaster aid, they don't actually count the money that they borrowed to pay for that disaster relief as part of the budget deficit. Because they say, well, you know, we it, it wasn't budgeted for. We didn't plan on it. It was unexpected. So we're going to pretend that we didn't pay that money. Can you imagine, you know, families you know, ran their household like that? They's like, well, if there's an unexpected expense, we'll just ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist. I mean, you got to pay it. And in fact, they did pay it. They borrowed the money to do it. So all of the stuff that's off budget, still requires debt to finance it, and so the national debt still goes up whether the government planned on spending the money or not. I mean it doesn't matter what they intended to do, what matters is what they actually did. And so during the fiscal year where the official budget deficit was $1.7 trillion, the actual national debt rose by better than uh, $2 trillion. And it, it could have been closer to $2.5 trillion because in the first Week or two of uh, October, the national debt jumped by 500 billion, like half a trillion, in in a couple of weeks. Now some of that spending really probably happened, you know, in uh, the prior fiscal year. So maybe the national debt actually increased closer to two and a half trillion during the same time period where the government officially acknowledged or claimed that the national debt rose by 1.7 trillion, which is still a huge number, <laughs> but it was actually much bigger than that if you just look at the national debt. And that is part of the problem. That is this fiscal time bomb that is in the process of exploding. Because as the size of the national debt is skyrocketing, the interest that we have to pay on the national debt is skyrocketing too. The rates are going up. So the amount of debt that we have to finance is going up, and the interest that we have to pay to finance it is going up. And in fact, it's a compounding situation because we have to borrow the money to pay that interest. Remember, every nickel that the government pays in interest on the debt, it has to borrow. <laughs> and all that additional borrowing adds to the national debt, which then has to be financed at a higher rate. Right? This, this whole thing is in the process of imploding. That's the point that I'm making and the point that everybody is ignoring, including... Uh, the Federal Reserve, and I want to talk about yesterday's uh, speech that uh, Jerome Powell gave in front of the Economic Club of New York, right? So, and I think I've spoken at the Economic Club of New York at some point in the past, you know, um, and, you know, if they really want to know what's going on in the economy or what's likely to happen in the future, that they ought to bring me back. I mean, forget about Powell. I mean, I mean, he's comic relief. I mean, th- th- he doesn't know what's going on. I mean, if he does, he's not going to be honest. He's going to lie. But, you know, he probably doesn't know. He's just clueless. Uh, and, and he lies on top of that. But if they want honest answers and, and actual legitimate, accurate answers, you know, I'm happy to come back and set the record straight. In fact, they should ask me every single question that they asked uh, Jerome Powell because my answer would pretty much be the opposite <laughs> of his answer. But of course, my answers would be accurate and would actually you know, have value. Uh, you know, in, in fact, I'm sure that most of the members of the Economic Club of New York, maybe all the members, know more e- about economics than Jerome Powell, right? Because you have to flunk a te- test about economics in order to qualify to be chairman of the Federal Reserve. In fact, you probably can't even get to be a Federal o- Open Market Committee member if you actually know anything about economics, right? So they have to make sure uh, that you flunk all these exams before they even allow you uh, to to be a member of the Fed. You know, people think these guys, you know, are the smartest a- 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 of all of us, right? That's why they're there because you know they're so super smart, and it's a good thing we have these, you know, geniuses, uh, you know, at the Fed, you know, because all of us simpletons, you know, we we can never survive. You know, we need their omnipotence, right? So they can divine. Uh, exactly what the interest rate needs to be, right, or what the inflation rate needs to be and just, you know, magically, uh, you know, get everything to come out perfectly, which, you know, hopefully at the end of this, all these uh, people at the Fed will be completely discredited. But I want to go over some of the more ridiculous things that he said. And I'm just going to go back to my own uh, Twitter account because I was watching this stuff and I was tweeting out a bunch of stuff. And then I rewatched it again you know because i was distracted when i was watching it live and i rewatched it later on that day and then i tweeted out a bunch of you know more comments i'm just going to go through them because this is going to remind me of uh, what i want to talk about but you know by the way speaking about my twitter account if you're not following me on twitter follow me at the end of this podcast just or you know just follow me on twitter I, i'm now less than 25,000 Followers from a million, and that's a big milestone. I mean, reaching a million Twitter followers isn't isn't uh, uh, easy. It's taken me a while. But the interesting thing about my Twitter followers is they're all organic. They're all real. There's no bots really that are following. Maybe there's a few of them, but I've never advertised. I've never purchased a a Twitter follower. You know, I go to like the the uh, Wall Street Journal Twitter page. And they got 25 million followers, 25 million. So 25 times the number of people who are following me. Yet if you look at their tweets and they, they tweet even more than I do, I mean, there's like they're nonstop tweeting over there at the Wall Street Journal, but nobody's reading these tweets. If you look at their engagement, you look at their, you know, their likes, their comments, their shares, they're all like double digits. Some of them are single digits. Then you look at my tweets. I mean, none of them are below triple digits. A lot of times they're quadruple digits in um, in likes or, or shares or comments. So they have uh, 20 25 times the number of followers I have, but I have like a hundred times the engagement they have. So if you adjust it for followers, I mean, nobody is paying any attention. Why are these people even following? I mean, I have a feeling that a lot of these followers. Which just purchased, you know, so that the Wall Street Journal could look good. But also, I do think that people like to follow the Wall Street Journal to show how smart they are to everybody else who, who goes to their, to their Twitter page, right? But I don't follow them, right? I, I don't have to pretend I'm smart and, I, and follow the Wall Street Journal. Because if I just read the Wall Street Journal, I probably wouldn't know nearly as much as I do because I would be just as blind as everybody else. But anyway, let me get back. So just go ahead and help me get to a million organic, natural, uh, Twitter followers. Uh, and if you're following me, you don't need to follow the Wall Street Journal. So if you are following them, just unfollow them, right? It's a waste of a follow. Anyway, so here's the, my first um, observation. So one of the things that Powell said is he said we need to weaken economic growth because he wants to lower inflation. And so he's looking at the economy and he said, oh, you know, it's just too strong. We didn't realize it was going to be so strong. We need it to weaken a little bit because that's what's going to bring inflation down. Again, complete fallacy. It's a Keynesian myth that uh, economic growth causes inflation. And I am going to continue to expose expose that myth and talk more about what Powell said uh, to uh, the Economic Club of New York on the other side of this commercial break. So stick around. I'm talking about Jerome Powell's uh, ridiculous comments that he uh, made to uh, questions asked of him uh, at his talk at the Economic Club of New York. And first off, I'm talking about Powell's uh, misconception that economic growth is what causes inflation. And if he wants to lower the inflation rate, he just has to slow down the growth of the economy. And that's BS. Now, when Powell's talking about economic growth, he's talking about consumer spending. He's looking at the spending numbers, retail sales uh, numbers, uh, GDP numbers, too, that are influenced by consumption, both by the government, too, and, and the, uh, the individual, because government's spending a lot of money, too. Uh, and, and a lot of the money that people are spending, they're getting from the government, right, in the form of uh, uh, checks. But that's not economic growth. That's just spending. That's not growing the economy. That's spending uh, what Uh, a growing economy produces except a lot of the growth is happening in Asia in other countries because we're spending on imports and we're also borrowing money debt is at record highs I mean the reason that consumers are spending more is because they're paying more number one right prices have gone way up so everything costs more and they're borrowing more to pay those higher prices now some of the consumers as I mentioned have had to take on second and third jobs to pay those higher prices. So if you're just looking at the spending and you think, oh, we have this really strong economy. No, it's not a strong economy. You're looking at inflation. That's what's going on. Inflation is driving this spending. It's not a strong economy. And you don't need to weaken the economy to reduce inflation. You just have to reduce the spending. And how do you do that? Well, you know, much higher interest rates, much higher than we have. But the government has to cut back on spending. They, 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 they got to you know cut back on welfare spending, or they even raise taxes and start paying down debt. But it's much better if they just cut government spending. But also, interest rates need to rise high enough so that people spend less of their paychecks. Again, we don't want people to stop working. No, if they stop working, they're not producing. That means there's less stuff. That puts upward pressure on prices. We want everybody to keep working. We just want them to stop spending everything they earn. They need to take some of their paychecks and save it, put it in the bank. But they're not going to do that because the bank's not paying any interest. And even if you get interest on a government bond by loaning your money to the government, which doesn't help the economy, when you put it in the bank, at least it could be loaned out to a businessman. But when you buy treasuries, you just, you know, the money's going to the government. They're just blowing it on consumption. Um, but People aren't going to save when the interest rates are still not high enough to compensate you for inflation. So we don't want to weaken the economy. We want to weaken spending. But Powell doesn't know the difference. He thinks spending is the economy. He thinks that it's the consumer that drives the economy by spending money. I went over this last podcast. No, the the consumer is the caboose. He's driven by the real engine of the economy, which is production. That's what we need more of. We need a stronger economy, but we need less spending, less consumption, more savings, more investment. None of that is happening. Powell doesn't understand that, so nothing that he's doing is going to be effective at bringing inflation down to 2%. Now, another thing that Powell did is he blamed today's inflation on the pandemic. He kept saying, well, it's the pandemic inflation. Like, everything was fine. And then this pandemic happened and and now we have to deal with the pandemic inflation and it's just taking longer to just get rid of this, you know, pandemic inflation. Again, the pandemic is not why we have inflation. The Fed is why we have inflation. Congress, the president are why we have inflation and not just Biden, but Trump and the presidents before him. They were all contributing to the inflation problem that we're dealing with today. Now, did we create even more inflation during COVID? Yes, we made the inflation problem worse, but it wasn't COVID. It wasn't the pandemic that did it. It was the government's response to the pandemic. That's what was the problem, not the pandemic. The pandemic was a health problem. But what the government did is turned it into an inflation problem (laughs) because they overreacted, number one, They forced people to stop working and then they ran huge deficits to send people stimulus checks to buy stuff that they weren't making. The worst possible combination of monetary and fiscal policy ever devised. And I I called them out on it in real time as they were making the mistakes. And I described exactly what was going to happen. In fact, I remember on my podcast when I called the peak of the bond bubble that started in 1980 when yields collapsed and, you know, the yields had a zero handle, like it was 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7 on a 10-year or 30-year. I said, that's it. This is done. The bond bull market is over. This is a blow-off top. And, you know, we're going much, much higher. And now we're at 5%. We're at the highest yield since 2007. And we're not even close to the end. We're going much, much higher than that. Uh, and, you know, that's part of this, you know, evolving uh, financial crisis. But, again, Powell doesn't understand where the inflation came from if he's being honest. And so if he doesn't know why we have inflation, how is he going to get rid of it? Well, he's not. And if he's just lying about it, well, you can't trust anything that he says. Now, he got a question about the banks. The guy asked him, and I forget who was asking these questions, but he asked him, you know, about the Silicon Valley Bank failure. And he said, you know, are we out of the woods, right? Is, is, Is the banking problem over? And he basically said, yeah, you know, uh, it's, it's pretty much behind us. You know, we got that handled. <laughs> it's just starting. That was the tip of the iceberg. And what doesn't make sense is if you look at how much value has been lost uh, in mortgage-backed securities and treasuries since the um, March bailout of Silicon Valley Bank, it's been an enormous collapse. And so the banks today are in far worse shape than they were back in March when Silicon Valley Bank failed or was bailed out or everybody else was bailed out. And the Fed should know this because the Fed is the biggest loser of them all because the Fed has more treasuries and mortgage-backed securities on its balance sheet than anybody else. So the Fed is the biggest loser. And somehow they think the crisis is behind us when it's all out in front of us and it's about to be playing out uh, in front of their eyes. Now, I, I can't imagine that he's, that he's this dumb. I mean, he's got to be just lying on that one. I mean, I'll, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt that he's not a complete idiot and he's just lying uh, because, you know, like uh, Jack Nicholson, I mean, nobody can handle the truth because he knows this thing is being televised, right? He knows people are watching CNBC, Bloomberg, Fox Business, everybody's, you know, got him up on television you know, and he's not going to scare the bejesus out of the markets by telling the truth. So, so he's got a so he's got a a, a lie. Um, let me get my next comment. Um, oh, I'm, I, I know if I yeah. You know, I, I thought this was interesting too. Is that they did talk about maybe there's not as much demand for Treasuries out there. Yeah, that 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 that's a, a massive understatement. Um, the the Chinese, the Japanese. Uh, everybody, I think, has been unloading uh, U.S. treasuries. I mean, they're major sellers, as is the Federal Reserve, which continues to shrink its uh, balance sheet. It's only a question of time, though, before until the dollar tanks. I mean, it hasn't really rallied recently, uh, but you know, it's got to get killed because the main demand for dollars really is to buy treasuries. I mean, that's why people want dollars. It's not like they want to buy our products because— they don't need them to buy our products. We got a huge trade deficit, right? So they got plenty of dollars to buy our products from selling us stuff that we didn't make. And they got lots of dollars left over. So what do they do with those dollars that they have left over? Well, they buy treasuries. Well, if they're not going to buy treasuries, what are they gonna do with them? Well, nothing. Why keep them? Get rid of them. Right? If you're not gonna buy treasuries, which you know, treasuries now really are one of the riskiest assets on the planet. I mean, look at how much they've gone down. I mean, look at that, you know, that TLT. Uh, security is down like 57% or something from its peak. People thought that was like a risk-free asset. I was warning for years about how risky uh, these treasury bonds were, and that thing has still got a long way to fall. I mean, it's pure risk. People were saying, oh, it's risk off. Let's buy treasuries. No, 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 no. <laughs> you got plenty of risk when you own treasuries. If you want to take risk off, you got to sell treasuries. Well, then what do you buy when you sell treasuries? Aha, gold. And I'm going to talk about uh, what happened with gold when I finished dissecting uh, the uh, the PAL comments. So i got to keep scrolling up on, uh, on this. And in fact, the backup in yields, the fact that the 30-year Treasury is now above 5% and rising, what does that tell you? That tells you that the markets are losing confidence in the Fed's ability to keep in- inflation at 2%. That's why the yields are rising. Of course, uh, Powell doesn't get that, and I'm going to get to that question uh, in a minute. I'm just trying to – oh, so here's the next point I tweeted about. (laughs) I couldn't believe this. So Powell started talking about the risks of inflation being too low again, right? He said that inflation can be too high or too low and that both are risks. And he said that for a while we had the problem of inflation being too low. And he said, now, you know, it's too high, but he's worried that at some point in the future, it's gonna be too low again. And now he's gonna have to deal with that problem. Like, that's a great problem to have because A, it's not even a problem, but the consumer can use some relief. But low inflation was never a problem. That was a made up problem so they can have an excuse to create more inflation. Now we've got a real problem of inflation being too high. Remember, it was in 2020, when Powell first introduced the concept of inflation averaging, where he said, you know, we don't have 2% as a target. We want inflation to average 2% over time because they wanted to justify letting inflation get to two and a quarter, two and a half. They didn't want to have to put on the brakes when we hit two. They wanted to make up for all the years where we were below two. So they redefined their target to an average inflation rate of 2%. Yeah, no one talks about that now. I mean, they haven't officially changed that. I mean, how many years are we going to have to have 1% inflation to average it down to 2 Because even the Fed doesn't claim it's going to get inflation down to 2% until uh, 2025. So that's like four or five years of inflation double, triple, quadruple, 2 I mean, 1%, we need zero. We need falling prices to average back down to 2%. Of course, no, no, no. They never want to do that. They only want to average up the low inflation. They never want to average down uh, the high inflation. So it's all a bunch of BS. Um, But here's one of the craziest things that he said. He was asked about the fiscal deficits, which are exploding, which are a huge problem, especially since he's raising interest rates and making those deficits harder to finance and bigger at the same time. So he was asked about it. And this is what Powell said. He said that he doesn't consider fiscal policy at all when he's making monetary policy. Like no one at the FOMC gives a damn. They don't even look at the federal budget. It's like some irrelevant thing that they don't even pay attention to. We don't care what's happening. And he also said that they don't adjust their policy based on what's happening with fiscal policy. Like, it's got nothing to do with their mandate. When it has everything to do with their mandate, where's the inflation coming from? (laughs) It's coming from the budget deficits that he monetizes. And government spending is driving inflation. If you're trying to slow down the economy or just trying to cool consumption, if the government is increasing spending. That is counteracting what you're trying to do. How could you avoid that? How could you not care about that? In fact, the very reason the Fed is supposed to be independent is so it could push back against reckless fiscal policy. The Fed is supposed to be the chaperone here at this spending party. And if Congress is spending too much money, we'll jack up rates, make it harder for them to do that. Raise the cost of borrowing so that they cut back. It, it makes no sense, like a doctor saying, "Yeah, I don't pay any attention to the patient's symptoms. I just prescribe whatever the hell I feel like, I, and then I don't even watch the patient to see how it reacts to my prescription. Like it's irrelevant, you know. I mean, the guy, the patient could die, and well, I, I don't care about that. I'm just, you know, I'm just doing what I'm doing. I, I'm not, I'm not looking. Or you you know, it, 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 none of this makes any sense. It's one of the most important things. If your responsibility is price stability." One of the most important things that you've got to consider is the fiscal uh, situation of the U.S. government. I mean, that's the debt. And if you're worried about a crisis, shouldn't you be worried about a debt crisis? Shouldn't you be worried? I mean, remember, I talked about it. Paul Volcker, when he actually won a fight against inflation, unlike Powell, who's losing, he criticized Congress all the time. He said you got to cut spending you got to reduce the deficit so we're never going to get rid of inflation he was honest Powell's a liar or he doesn't know what he's talking about of course fiscal deficits matter in fact right now they matter more than ever before and Powell is clueless uh about what's going on all right he really is like a mr magoo you know i used to call greenspan mr magoo for all the stuff he was missing because he at least looked a little bit more like him but uh, but Powell is just, you know, walking around and there's accidents happening all around him and he had got no idea what's going on. And to make it even worse, when he was asked about the backup in long-term interest rates, which, of course, is the biggest problem out there, right, what's happening with long-term interest rates. And the guy asked him, you know, why are they going up? And, of course, you know, Powell probably hasn't, has no idea. You know, he doesn't understand. But the first thing he said is, well, I'll tell you why they're not going up. He said they're not going up because of inflation. He says yields are not going up because bond investors are worried about higher inflation. (laughs) Really? How does he know that? Seems like a very self-serving answer because his job is to fight inflation. He claims that he's doing a good job. So the first thing he says is, okay, well, I'll tell you one thing. The reason that those yields are not going up is because of inflation. It's got nothing to do with that. Well, you know, that's exactly why they're going up. That's the fact, maybe that's the reason he had to say that that's not where they're going up because he wants to throw people off the track because of course that's why they're going up. People need to be compensated for higher inflation. Now, the funny thing about it is he admitted that part of the problem could be supply, right? He said, well, maybe that bond investors are worried about rising deficits or that there's going to be more treasuries on the market and so maybe that could be causing higher yields. Yeah, but because that means more inflation. The bigger the budget deficits are, the more likely there is to be inflation. You see, Powell may not be paying attention to the budget deficits, but bond investors are finally paying attention to the budget deficits. They know that those budget deficits lead to more inflation. Powell apparently hasn't figured that out yet, or he's just lying about it. But I mean, that was probably going to be, you know, go down if you, you know, in history for his legacy of failure, you know, the, what, how he fiddled while, you know, Rome burned, where he said, oh, yeah, we don't care. We don't care about the fiscal deficits. We don't worry about the national debt. We don't worry about the budget deficits. You know, there was a guy on CNBC today, uh, uh, Michael Boskin, uh, who is uh, the president of the Atlanta Fed. He's not voting right now, but he was on CNBC this morning. And I, I forget who was interviewed. Maybe it was Steve Leisman or whoever it was, said something like, well, what about the, the fiscal situation in the United States? Do you think this is sustainable? I mean, we got these big deficits, we got the national debt. And so Boskin said, well, you know, eventually they won't be sustainable. He said, at some point in the future, uh, as interest rates keep rising, these deficits won't be sustainable, and then Congress is going to have to start talking about it. You know, like the time to talk about it has long since passed. In fact, they needed to do something about it, and they didn't. That was the problem. They only talked about it, and they did nothing, and then they stopped talking. But to say that it's not sustainable until the future, when interest rates goes up, it's not sustainable right now because interest rates have already gone up. In fact, it was unsustainable before they went up, because we knew they were going to go up. To say it's not unsustainable until after they go up, again, I, I, I said this on the last podcast, if you jump off the top of the Empire State Building, you know, you're done. You can't say, it's well, it's not a problem until I hit the, the pavement. The minute you jumped, hitting the pavement is inevitable. So this problem has been there. It has been unsustainable for years. It's just that we were able to pretend that it wasn't. Because we can afford the interest, just like you could pretend you're okay, you know, assuming you stay alive for, for that fall for the top of the building uh, until, until you actually hit the pavement. Well, we're about to hit that pavement, right? So, you know, we're gonna we're gonna suffer the consequences of this unsustainable deficit. In fact, we're seeing them right now. They're playing out before the blind eyes of our our policymakers. Now uh, let me see. If I had some more comments from Pal, I forget what else. Um, uh, So I think I think that's it. I think those are all of my Pal tweets. There may have been some other uh, ridiculous comments that he made that I I, I didn't I didn't tweet about because you know it's it's only so many so much time I have. Pretty much everything he said was wrong or or laughable or a lie. But anyway, I want to get to the market action. Uh, during the week because the last four days of the week were particularly interesting. Forget about Monday, but from Tuesday through uh, Friday, the stock market was down every day. Now, the Dow, I think, on Monday was about flat, but the S&P and the NASDAQ uh, were down. But on Wednesday, the Dow dropped too. But pretty much the overall stock market dropped four days in a row as interest rates rose all of those days until today. And, and, and they, they hit new highs today, but we had a little bit of a rally. But the stock market was closed on the lows or close to the lows, uh, very ugly technical action. Those four days, the NASDAQ was down 4% during those four days, so average 1% per day. I mean, that's pretty big. I mean, if that continues, that, that adds up to, to a lot. The interesting thing about about that is that while tech stocks are now reacting the way they should to rising bond yields, gold stopped acting the way it shouldn't and is now acting the way it should by going up. Gold was up every day for those four days. In fact, it was up about almost $60 over those four days. It closed the week at 19 Now, if you remember, two weeks ago today, I did a podcast. It was the Friday that we got the jobs report. Gold is $160 higher than the low from that Friday. And we almost hit 2,000 an ounce earlier this morning before we got some profit-taking in gold. So I guess that round number, I think the futures got above 2000 but the spot market, I think the high I saw was about 1997 before we backed off, you know, to uh, 1981. But um, just based on where we closed, it's $160. But to the high, it was almost $180 rally in in two weeks. That tells me something. And, you know, I think I was... Uh, pretty accurate in my call on that Friday that we had bottomed in gold because I really liked the one-day outside reversal day, which to me looked pretty strong. Plus, I was looking for a bottom anyway, because I knew that everything that was going on uh, was very bullish for gold. And, you know, the stuff that's happening in the Middle East, which unfortunately, as I said, is just getting progressively worse, uh, and I expect that trend to continue, unfortunately. Uh, this is just adding uh, another bullish element to to the gold story, which didn't need any more help, by the way. It was already going to go way up. Um, and oil, too, you know, oil continued to rise. Uh, it it, it um, didn't get above uh, 90. It was at like 89.60, 89.70, and then it had a little bit of a sell-off today. It closed at 88 a barrel, but oil prices continued to rise. I, I, I expect, again, a much bigger rise. The charts look great for oil and gold and, again, bond yields, too. They're all moving uh, in in the same direction. But this is significant that we saw uh, this move up because gold is now breaking free of uh, this relationship it's had with bonds. Gold and bonds were falling together. Now, gold is rising as bonds are falling. That is an important uh, missing piece to this puzzle, which is in the process of being completed. Because gold is now taking over as the safe haven. Treasuries are a risk asset. They're not a safe haven. Again, what is the risk? Inflation. The risk is also the fiscal predicament of the United States, which causes more inflation. But... If that is your risk, if you're worried about spiraling budget deficits and inflation, the last thing you'd want to do is buy treasuries, and so they're not a safe haven. What is a safe haven from inflation and a sovereign debt crisis? Gold. That's what investors are doing. They're buying gold, but even gold stock investors haven't figured this out yet, because while gold was up uh, 3% in four days, Gold stocks didn't move very much. The GDX was up like 1.7%. The GDXJ was up 2% during those four days. Normally, if gold was up 3%, actually was up 3.2%, you would expect those stocks to be up double, maybe 7%, you know, on a move like that, Uh, 6.5%. did not happen. Why? Because gold is climbing a wall of worry the investors who buy gold stocks don't believe the rally. They, you know, they've, been, they've seen this before. They've seen gold get up to 2,000, and it doesn't hold. Now, maybe some people think, well, it's all just about the Middle East. It's about Israel. It'll blow over. Well, first of all, the problem in Israel ain't blown over. It's going to be here for a long time. So even if that was the reason gold was rising, you know, it's going to be a long time before that situation is resolved. But that's not the reason. It's rising because of inflation. It's rising because of a loss of confidence uh, in the Fed, in its ability to return inflation to 2%, a loss of confidence in the sustainability of the U.S. A fiscal situation that is spiraling out of control. Uh, so I do think that we're going to break through that 2000 resistance, but then I think gold is going to break through to Uh, new highs, because if rising interest rates aren't going to hurt gold, then that's it. There's nothing left. And it was the rising interest rates that were also pushing up the dollar. The dollar hasn't started to fall, but it ain't going up anymore. It didn't really gain any ground this week on the the rise in bond yields. In fact, let me look at the, the dollar index on the week, and it actually declined on the week. So that's another good sign. Gold was up, shrugged off rising rates. The dollar declined, shrugged off uh, rising rates. So this, again, brings us closer to this crashing dollar, uh, uh, crashing bonds, uh, rising gold. That brings us much, much closer to this financial crisis kicking into a higher gear. As I said, we just started. It's early in the crisis, but it is going to continue to get worse. Now I got a comment too to close off the podcast on Bitcoin because people are going to say, "Peter, why are you talking about gold? Look at Bitcoin. Bitcoin was way up. Bitcoin actually got above 30,000 today this morning. That's the highest it's been in a long time. Let me see where it is right now as I am recording this uh this podcast. I know it didn't hold 30,000. Uh, yeah, 29600 and change. But, you know, it's, it's close enough, right? It's, it had a strong day, stronger than gold, stronger week than gold. But it didn't rise for the same reason. It didn't r- rise because of safe haven. It rose because speculators are betting on an ETF. In particular, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust now filed to convert to an ETF. This is something that Schoenstein or I forget whoever they got guys. Uh, I debated that guy Barry. Um, uh, There's two guys. I forget their names, but that that run uh, a, a grayscale. Um, but they've been trying to get this uh, ETF for for years. Of course, it's the worst thing that can happen to their business model because they charge a two percent management fee, and and so that's that's huge just to just to babysit your Bitcoin. But their AUM is going to collapse once this thing goes to a, uh, a, a, an ETF. And of course, when it is an ETF, they're not even gonna be able to charge 2% management fees anymore because no one's gonna, gonna keep their money. They're gonna take it out if they, and, and go to another ETF that charges less. The reason they couldn't do that before was a closed-end fund. But a lot of people bought the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. The discount got to almost 50%. So you could buy a dollar's worth of Bitcoin For 50 cents. Now, of course, a dollar's worth of Bitcoin is worth nothing. So you bought nothing for 50 cents, but at least market wise, what was trading in the market at a dollar, you could buy for 50 cents. I think that the discount now has narrowed all the way back to about 12. But remember, for years, it was trading at a 20, 30% premium, right? But before it crashed. But a lot of people were buying the grayscale Bitcoin trust waiting for it to become an ETF so that the discount would go away. And now they're going to sell. So what's going to happen when this thing is finally an ETF? All the people who were buying it, hoping it would become an ETF, are going to sell. The trade is done. They made their money. They won. Now it's time to ring the cash register and sell. And so what does that mean? That means that all these Bitcoin, and there's like, based on today's price, I don't know, $13, $14 billion 14000000000 dollars worth of Bitcoin that have been locked up in this trust for years, right? It was a roach motel for Bitcoin. They check in, but they can't check out. Well, now all the roaches can get out because now people can get their money back. Before you could sell your shares, but you had to sell to another buyer. And that's why there was a discount. But now you could just get your money back. But how does Grayscale give you your money back? They got to take the Bitcoin that they've got, sell them to get the cash to give people their money. So I think that there's going to be a wave of Bitcoin selling when uh, this thing becomes an ETF. Everybody thinks that, no, 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 there's all these people are just waiting to buy the ETF. Like for some reason, they don't want to buy now. They want to wait till there's an ETF and then buy. No, I think people are waiting for an ETF to sell. You know, it's buy the rumor, sell the fact. It's not buy the rumor and buy more on the fact. In fact, they may start selling on the rumor of the fact. I mean, this thing could collapse any day. Uh, Because I think a lot of the people who are waiting to ring their cash register are not going to get as much money out of this trade as they think. Because I think we're going to start the collapse in Bitcoin and uh, Grayscale. Because once Bitcoin starts going down, it's going to drag down the, 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 uh, the, the Grayscale Trust before it actually happens. I think so the smart money is not waiting to sell on the news. They're selling now on the rumor of the news. Anyway, that's it for today's podcast. Uh, again, let me remind everybody, if you stuck around for 57 minutes, you must like the content. So don't forget to hit that like button. Uh, subscribe to this channel. Uh, leave me a comment. You know, I, I want to let everybody know too, because I, I teased about this some time ago. But um, we're having a big party here at my house uh, tomorrow night. I can still hear the music outside the studio. We're doing some rehearsals. We got about 400 people. Coming over to my house for a uh, a Halloween party, but uh, one thing that's special about the party—well, there are actually a number of things—but particularly to me is my wife is making her debut with her new band. I I, I talked about this at one point in the podcast, and, and soon I think we're going to have her music uh, out there where you guys can you know get it on iTunes or wherever people post their music. But uh, she partnered up with a guy named Tony Frattinelli who uh, was the original guitarist for Third Eye Blind, who happened to be a big Peter Schiff fan. And that's how he reached out to me. But then he kind of hooked up, you know, with my wife uh, uh, on collaborating uh, on some music. And and so they have about a dozen songs now that they've written original music. So uh, Tony uh, composes the music and my wife uh, uh, you know, wrote the lyrics and and is the vocal, and it's a two man or a man and a woman group. They call themselves uh, the Laughing Cats. So they're going to make their debut. Uh, they're going to be performing a number of their original songs uh, live at this party. So uh, once it's out, I'll be sharing the the, uh, the music with everybody, and you can hopefully enjoy it. I think it's I think it's good stuff. It's very popular uh, music. It's catchy, so I think it, it you know it could it could do well. Uh, and um, if you want to see some some uh, images of this party, I'm sure she's going to put everything up on her uh, Instagram page. So if you look, if you look, if you have to you know, figure out who, you know, who my wife is. But she's up there. <laughs> she's on uh, Instagram. So hopefully uh, she does a great job. I'm very proud of her and the work that she's put in uh, to this performance and all of these songs that she's uh, worked so hard uh, to create. And now she's going to perform them for a live audience for the first time. Anyway, have a great weekend, everybody. And I will be uh, back again with more podcasts as this financial crisis continues to unfold uh, in in a way that nobody but us seems to to be able to uh, see it. But eventually what we can see will be obvious to the rest of the world. But by then, of course, it will be too late for them to do anything about it. But for my audience, it's not too late. You still have time, uh, so buy your gold, get your uh, financial house in order uh, before the whole house comes tumbling down. Bye for now.